This podcast is made possible by DistroKid, the new standard in digital music distribution. DistroKid is the best way to get your music on Spotify, Apple Music, Pandora, TikTok, and more. Check them out at distrokid.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. If there is an authority on the production, editing, mixing, and mastering of film scores, it is Mike Mattesino. He has had a hand in hundreds of films, including classics such as the Star Wars trilogy, Poltergeist, The Goonies, Superman, Back to the Future, Home Alone, the Star Trek films, and Empire of the Sun. For his latest project, he meticulously remixed and remastered the super deluxe version of The Sound of Music from the original multi-track tapes and also wrote the in-depth liner notes. It is a definitive collection that includes every musical element from Rodgers and Hammerstein's timeless masterpiece for the very first time, along with 11 never-before-heard alternate takes, including rare performances from the cast. Jeff Stanfield caught up with Mike from his home in Los Angeles to discuss. Enjoy. Well, again, thanks for your time today. And we're here to talk about the new Super Deluxe release of Sound of Music. But before we do that, you've been part of just staggering amount of of uh, soundtrack releases, whether as a producer, a, a mixer, mastering engineer, etc. And, you know, what led you as a as an engineer and audio guy down this path specifically so focused around soundtracks? The pathway was entirely due to the sound of music, all the way back to 1994, because um, shortly after coming to Los Angeles, I began working with and for the producer and director of the sound of music, Robert Wise, to start work on material for a 30th anniversary release that was going to include a documentary that I directed. And so it involved getting to know everybody who was still around, who had um, been part of the making of the film and the cast and the crew, And halfway through that work, I got a call from the home entertainment department at 20th Century Fox that the music department was pulling the scoring masters for The Sound of Music. Uh, The gentleman who was overseeing that was Nick Redman, who the previous year had come to L.A. and started with 20th Century Fox doing a soundtrack restoration program. And I first met him the previous year, shortly after... um, he'd got the program started um, when he pulled the tapes from The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was another Robert Wise movie. So, um, of course, I said when The Sound of Music was being pulled, I thought, sure, of course, I'll participate in what's going on. And I went down to the lot and was taken into the machine room and I was handed a surgical mask very much like the ones we've all had to start wearing three years ago. And I was hit with this toxic smell of, like, vinegar and it was explained to me that these 35 millimeter mag tapes were deteriorating, were actually being considered toxic, and they were in the process of making backup tapes to 
two inch 16 track and um, there were little catch basins on these mag machines where the rust colored powder was falling and I it just was a uh, it's it was an epiphany that moment because I really just never grasped until that second that something as historically valuable and as financially valuable as the recordings to the sound of music could disappear if they're not taken care of. So it was a very big eye-opening moment. So we set to work to make a soundtrack album for the sound of music that would accompany the 30th anniversary video release derived from these studio scoring masters. And we did that in the same big dubbing stage where new films were mixed. And so that was very, very expensive. It was all very new to me. And all I could really do is advise on how something was sounding. This vocal's too loud, that one's too low, I hear too much cellos here. So it was all, but because very, very expensive. But uh, nevertheless, it got done. And um, I went on from that with Nick to work on the Star Wars trilogy when it was reissued in 1997 for the special edition releases. And more things started coming my way. And I just um, started seeing things that were not in the great shape, but the technology was increasing. And I reached a point where I kind of felt, you know, if I could do this myself and we weren't have to um, spend all that money at the, um, at the studios at those exorbitant rates, uh, you know, we'd achieve a better result because it needs some real special care. And, you know, the time shouldn't be a factor. If you're trying to preserve history, you should give it all the attention it needs. And um, it was sort of a parallel of my skill set increasing in that regard, along with technology. And by the time we got to the 2000s, and everybody was now working in a world where you could actually see the music, as it were, in waveforms, and you can tell where there were dropouts, where there was um, deterioration, um, uh, and you had the tools to repair things. Um, it, it was a game changer, and I just kind of stayed in that world in a very big way, even though I continued working with Bob, did the post-production supervision on his director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture, um, but I just felt that I developed a very specialized ear and specialized methodology specifically towards uh, film and television music. But it really all started with the sound of music. And for better part of 20 years, more than 20 years, I'd wanted to do what we've now just accomplished, which is merge all of the surviving material, everything that the record label had, everything that had been backed up at the studio in 1994 to analog tape now laid off and to have to apply uh, the wonderful new technology as well as my skill level to it to at last produce uh, what is uh, the definitive version of everything that has survived on the recording of that movie. When, when you did the original um, transfers, and for the for the you know the re-release the 30th anniversary edition i'm assuming they were in pretty rough shape as you were saying they were kind of flaking off and everything so did you end up having to actually sort of remix that record 
Well, um, well, what we did was we included the content of the record for the most part, but there were differences between the record and the film. So this gold CD that we produced in 1994 uh, was reflective of the film scoring masters. And there were some rough spots, but overall it was not in terrible shape. It's simply that the material, you know, it's organic material. It's going to be subject to its environment. So um, it just was not going to last forever. It would start getting um, uh, wow and flutter. And there were some instances of that, but we had clever ways of, in those days of um, dealing with it, where the mixer would isolate what track was wowing or what stem was wowing, and it would dip that down and dip it up. Now, of course, we have tools to um, wrestle every alligator that they could throw at me. You know, we have a way of wrestling. So um, uh, it was just more, it was more done like a live mix based on the time and the budget we had. And when it sounded reasonably okay, you know, we just kind of went with it. By today's standards, it was extremely uh, outdated way of working. And uh, especially with a musical where you want to take the time very, very carefully to pay attention to how they balanced the vocals originally uh, and try to nail that as much as you can. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of uh, listening over and over again until it feels right. Yeah, and when you're, when you're going back to something that has such history... And what's your approach to re-releasing something like The Sound of Music? And I, and I always think of, you know, this has obviously happened over the years where people are revisiting material that's just so iconic. What's your approach to bringing this new life? I mean, were you trying to reintroduce or, or showcase elements that maybe had been previously buried? I know there's new material, of course, but in terms of the the sonics and the and the quality of the of the masters and things like that. I mean, what how do you, how are you approaching that? My approach is actually to reach a point where I can now get the technology out of the way. It's miraculous and it's wonderful and it can solve the problems and it can take care of all of the superficial problems on the surface. Tape splices, dropouts, all ticks, pops, all that. After all that's done, uh, I like the tech to get out of the way and approach it emotionally. When it comes to film and television music, the whole purpose of its existence is to amplify the underlying emotions of the story that's going on. So, um, on the, something like The Sound of Music, which has been, you know, a big favorite of, in my life since early childhood, and then I got to do the documentary about the making of it and work with the filmmakers, um, I had a lot of what's come to be called tribal knowledge about it, but um, and and it, and it can be maybe easy to get jaded when you know something so well. But what I try to do is get back to a place where, um, you know, in a way, the producer or the engineer, wherever you are in that chain, um, you're like a representative. You're like an elected official, and you have to represent the people. So. Um, for me, it comes back to I want the emotional impact. When I listen, I want to be hit and feel the same emotion that the filmmakers or the composer and the recording engineers were going for. Um, you know, so I'm representing them as well as the audience, I feel, because all the decisions that were made at the time were made for a reason. 
and you have to honor that. But um, when you go back to something and apply modern technology to it, like we did with Star Trek, the motion picture, um, it all eventually comes back to the emotional impact. You want to be hit with the thing that they, emotions that they wanted you to be hit with. And um, when I feel that, and when something I know intimately, something I know every frame of, something I've heard a thousand times, when it can still let you feel that surge in your heart or bring a tear to the eye, that's when I know it's working. So um, in a way, it's Star Trek, the motion picture as a story, the story of the film reflected that, where you have all this technology, um, but at the end of the day, you need the human touch. That's the only thing that really makes the technology mean anything, is we have to still connect as people. And music is so inherently an emotional medium in whatever genre you're working in. Um, it has to come down to the emotional impact. You have to feel it. Yeah. And I think that's a real challenge in some ways, because we, we do have the ability now to take audio and be more expansive, be more immersive, all the buzzwords of, of you know, uh, today's audio world and, and all the technology. But when I think back on things that like Sound of Music or, you know, perhaps like a Bernard Herrmann score or one of these things, I mean, they were recorded in such a way that was, I'm sure that you could go back and make it sound like it was recorded today. But I think that that uh, it must take some sort of restri- restraint to not want to stem that that original intent. And there is something so iconic about those recordings um, because of the, the limits of the technology, but they were able to obviously capture something that resonated emotionally with the picture um, and tell a story, I think, is is such an important part. It, in the case of a musical, of course, it, it is the story. Um, I, I think anytime you're visiting these older recordings, it, the challenge is really maintaining its original intent. Well, um, having then gone on to work with Nick Redmond for 25 years, doing things for 20th Century Fox, you, you get to know the history of the people that work there, the engineers that worked there, um, and the um, uh, and the room. And I have a very emotional response to rooms when I go into them. Uh, it happens to me like in antique stores or curio shops. I kind of feel the weight of everything in there. Oh, it was owned by somebody. It meant something to somebody. And I kind of get that vibe, and I can't stay in there too long. But the scoring stages in Hollywood are just, to me... Um, you know, um, painting is like a way of decorating a room visually, but music decorates it sonically. And I just think that when you're in a room where Marilyn Monroe performed and Betty Grable and Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley, you know, that's imprinted on the walls. It's in there. I feel it when I walk in. And so when you have, um, and the orchestra too, I mean, everything that's ever been played there left this little crumb of toast at the bottom of the toaster. It's still there. So um, so I've gotten to know that room and know how it sounds. And um, again, I know when I can close my eyes and feel that I'm on the Newman stage. Um, There's a lot of history there that I feel, um, you know, a responsibility towards uh, preserving. Um, And uh, so that goes into 
capturing the sound and then reading what we can find about Doug Williams and the team that you know got the um, special recognition for the sound work on the Sound of Music. Um, you know, Lionel Newman rebuilt that whole music department in 1964 in the aftermath of Cleopatra, which nearly closed the studio. And he built it with what ended up becoming a who's who of film scoring for the next 30 years. John Williams was there and Jerry Goldsmith and Alex North and uh, Henry Mancini and Andre Previn and um, all the great orchestrators, Alexander Courage and Herbie Spencer and the music editors and... Uh, you know, it was uh, quite a department of people coming together, just the best of the best, defining what film scoring was and defining what it should sound like. And um, uh, that's an era and a studio that I love to talk about and imagine, you know, going back in time and, you know, getting together at one of those uh, end of the day drinks at Lionel Newman's office with that team of people. Um and when you think about the musical work that was being done at that time, Leslie Brickus and Ian Fraser there doing Dr. Doolittle and, uh, you know, and the sound of music and, you know, all those great musicians working there. Um, there's a responsibility, I think, to kind of preserve that, capture that and not stray too far from uh, the quality that it has to offer. You don't want to take any of it away. All you want to do is try to bring it out. And you don't want to take something that was you know it was only 40 musicians playing, trying to make it sound like 80. You just don't, you just don't do that. You do what you can to, um, uh, as I said, bring the emotional impact that the filmmakers wanted and that the composer wanted. That's what I go for. With the, some of the new technology, you're talking about those specific rooms. Um, and I'm sure that when you know what room these were recorded in, that that's probably pretty informative for you in terms of the actual restoration process or, you know, reimagination process or however you'd like to sort of whatever you like to call it. But are there any tools that you're using with, I mean, now, you know, there's these a billion plugins with, you know, all the different studios and Capitol studios and, you know, sound city, all the, you know, different rooms that you impulse responses, et cetera. Uh, is, does any of that ever come into play with, with anything that you're doing? Uh, I quite like the Abbey Road plugins, and uh, that to me is kind of um, like the go-to place for where to, for something to sound good. Um, but uh, by and large, when you're talking about older titles, particularly 20th Century Fox, where things happen to have been saved, and from 1953 onwards, we had Mag. Um, it's already at a stage where it's mixed. So we're not really going back to multi-track and having to remix over again. We already basically have a capture of what they mix down, usually to six-track. Um, so that's the starting point. It's just that now you want to try to do subtractive work. You want to try to get rid of the hiss and the wow and the flutter and, the, and deal with um, dropouts and, and that kind of thing. You want to get the, um, the problems out of the way and let what's there. It's, it's you know, the old analogy about is it Michelangelo, char, you know, chiseling? It's like he's creating the statue that was already in there. He's just taking away the outer layer that doesn't need to be there. So, um, but uh, but all the tech is great. Um, the uh, um, the tech for getting rid of Wow that is just a godsend because there were tracks when we did albums in the '90s that uh, whole scores that were deemed unreleasable because of that. 
um, or that they would have uh, releases with archival bonus tracks stuck at the back end because they were damaged. And uh, in a number of titles, we've turned that around and we've made the unreleasable releasable. So uh, uh, on this one, we didn't have to say no to anything. There was an answer for everything, including tracks that we actually didn't have at all. So a combination of grabbing things from the movie or um, uh, finding um, two words that were in better shape on the RCA Victor Master than they were on the 20th Century Fox in terms of clean vocals, stitching it all together seamlessly, um, you know, getting rid of the edits, which back in the day were kind of very easy to disguise by rolling off top end and stuff. But when you actually um, are looking at it at full fidelity, it's there, it's obvious, you see the hole. And now we have, you know, the, the ability to smooth that over. So to me, it's more about getting rid of the problems than it is trying to do anything, in, trying to make the audio into something it's not. You never want to do that. It's you, you get far better results by taking a subtractive approach and getting rid of the what doesn't need to be there. On an emotional level, how was it revisiting this again with Robert Weiss no longer being with us? And, and you know, how was that for you? Just on an emotional level without your friend there. Yeah, it was very, very powerful emotionally to, first of all, to finally realize that at last this is going to get done after asking to do it for 20 years. Uh, having all of the material in front of me and finding that I really remembered almost everything about it. I knew what we had and didn't have and what its condition was and what we what else we needed to fill holes. Um, Nick Redman passed in early 2019 almost simultaneously with the uh, 20th Century Fox being acquired by the Walt Disney Company. And so uh, there's a lot of emotion in my mind attached to that. And then um, the fact that Bob Wise has kind of come back to live with me because I did the audio work on The Sound of Music in 2021. And then we got the green light to go back and do Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, for 4K um, and Dolby Atmos. And so the writing on The Sound of Music had to be put off till after that. But, uh, you know, so... Um, um, on because through Star Trek I got to know Jerry Goldsmith as well so all these guys came back uh, to, to to live with me and so and I and that's uh so it's this there's, there's no way to not be emotional about it um, when Bruce Botnick and I were redoing Star Trek the motion picture remixing it we put a picture on the screen of Bob and Jerry together that was taken at the Hollywood Bowl to make sure they were, we were always looking at them to see what they thought and to make sure we were on the right track. Um, yeah, again, it's like, uh, um, it's even more powerful, I think, with the sound of music because it's rare um, that you actually have a story in which music itself is the power in the narrative. I mean, music within the story changes people. Um, it You know, it's, helps the captain get over his grief and reconnect with his children and then and find new love in his life music does that so um as i said before it's like whatever genre you work in um you have to recognize that music has the power to change people and so this project was not just about making the music sound good but recognizing that uh 
it has a, an addition, res, additional responsibility in that it's about a story in which music has the power to change people. So, um, yeah, the emotions were constantly powerful as, you know, since so many people love the film and love the, the show and the story and it's endured all these decades. And that's one of the reasons um, why that's the case is because the music is so great in and of itself, but it also fills the role of um, a very profound thing about how music can change people. Yeah, I mean, my my parents know every note of of this film and i know every song note melody <laughs> my kids uh you know this this is arguably the most powerful musical most well-known musical ever made um you know it it's certainly just become part of the fabric that's why i was excited to talk to you and i thought this would be great for tape op because genre wise we cover a bunch of different things we you know from from metal to country guys to indie rockers whatever when i saw the the opportunity to talk about the sound of music i was like everybody that will listen to this it's been part of their life and it's pretty powerful so yeah it's a real treat to talk to you on about it on that as somebody that's been inside the sausage factory as it were you've really seen every every bit of this and we also have you know a generation now of um, people working in the industry who probably may not even have ever experienced a tape turning you know um and uh, and understand about deterioration or wow or flutter or what's that um you know there we live in everything's recorded so pristinely now um that uh that aspect of it of how to handle historic material as a whole separate thing and within that is uh the um the work with film and television music specifically which has a role um it serves something else but it's the only piece of a movie that can be taken apart and presented as its own artistic artistic expression um, I mean, yeah, you could maybe do a display of the costumes, but it's still, it's always going to be a reflective reflection of the movie. But the music can stand alone as its own piece of, um, its own, has its own presentational power. So uh, it's a very specialized um, area of the business, but that's important because this, this is our, our cultural history. And uh, I've always just felt very strongly that... Uh, um, whatever I can do to help uh, preserve that, I will do because I just uh, figure that if things come my way, it might be the only time somebody gets to work on it. And if someone wants to listen to something in 500 years, it should exist. It should be there. And someone should have given it the attention uh, that it needs. And in the case of The Sound of Music, the screenwriter, Ernie Lehman, said that people will probably be watching this movie in a thousand years. And I think he's right. No, I agree. And I, I, the music, especially for this, tells the story. I mean, you're, you know, we, we can talk about Star Wars or some of these other ones and you, you know, they're very evocative in, in terms of the scene, but you can put on the sound of music and it's like an audio book, you know, it's, it's, uh, the story is there, um, which is such a lovely thing. And that you can't, you can't take that, you can't take the songs out of it. Like some musicals, you, you can, and the story is still there, but you actually can't. Because in this story, they discuss the fact that they're going to sing. It's, uh, it exists diegetically within the story, and each thing 
uh, serves the characters and the plot, and so nothing can be removed. Now, now some of the material on this release has never been heard, is my understanding. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what got included and anything that, that didn't uh, make the cut? There's nothing really that didn't make the cut. Um, happy to report that, as I said before, every alligator was successfully wrestled. Um, and it, it was great to in, be able to include everything that you actually hear in the film and all the underscore, all the little bridges within songs that may not have been on the original album and so forth, as well as little bits and pieces that weren't used. And then we also did a remastering of the soundtrack album program. And uh, the Super Deluxe Edition includes a Atmos mix of that, done by Steve Jenowick brilliantly. And I brought him the multi-track, and my two-track mix was the starting point. But then, you know, um, he went from there to see you know how far we could uh, take it to, um, you know, give that very well-known album uh, an immersive experience. And it turned out great. Uh, and then we included any extras that had been on previous editions that have come throughout the years, um, interview bits and such. And um, I was very happy that there was also room to include just the orchestral underscoring of every song um, so that you could actually hear the brilliant um, orchestrations and the playing of the um, 20th Century Fox Studio Orchestra under... Erwin Kostel, who based a lot of what he did on the Broadway orchestrations, um, Robert Russell Bennett and Trudy Rittman, um, but then did a phenomenal job and, of course, won an Oscar for his work. So um, we found um, playback tracks, which is what would have been prepared to film to on set. And then in some cases, they went back and made changes uh, afterwards a bar here, a bar there, a line here, a line there. Um, in some cases, um, redoing a chorus or something. Um, and then uh, we also very famously now are debuting the Christopher Plummer vocals on three songs that he recorded, which um, ultimately in the film, um, his voice singing voice was replaced by Bill Lee. So... Um, um, a few various alternate things here and there, but it all ended up being a uh, hundred tracks and spanning four CDs. And when you're sequencing that and putting that together, are you using the original releases as a guide? Well, the original soundtrack album from 1965 actually was not in film order. And those decisions were based on the requirements of vinyl, where uh, I think it was felt that you needed the tighter grooves the inside of the vinyl and climb every mountain worked better there or something like that. So it's out of sequence. Um, subsequent CD releases kind of joggled the order around and put it in sequence, which we did. But um, the film chronology, basically, we knew. That was very obvious. Everything that's uh, the whole, all the music you hear in the film is there, um, you know, A to Z. And, um, you know, we we talked about um, how to present it and it just seemed to be very logical to break discs one and disc two into acts one and act two since the film had an intermission and make, make that nice uh, clean presentational break and then the uh, um, album and the um, 
alternates fit nicely and the orchestra tracks all kind of fell into place very nicely across the um, two remaining discs. So um, it had a very, very nice uh, balance and it just, uh, it went in like it had eyes, which is always nice to see. But, uh, and I've said this before, this applies to um, putting programs together as well as to the writing, when I do the writing, that everything reaches a point where it starts showing you how it's going to go. And you have to sort of surrender to that process. Um, and uh, and I, I tend to try to do that. When, I, when, the, when the answer's in front of you, you, you just feel like, okay, it's, I'm getting a sign here. That's the way it's uh, got to go. Then you listen, and if it works, you just say, okay, I guess that's it. And don't try to overthink it once it's in place. Just one last question before we go. Um, you know, you've had your hands on literally hundreds of soundtracks, and I was curious from your perspective, you know, for you, what, what makes a great score? Well, um... I mean, that's a big question and it could have many, many answers, but, uh, uh, I think that when, um, you know, in a novel, you have the benefit of writing what the character is thinking, but, uh, in a movie you don't, unless you resort to, you know, hokey voiceovers and such, the music has to kind of fill that in. It can, um, give you the character's inner thoughts and maybe underline the themes that are going on beneath the surface. It's almost like its own narrative. And I personally respond more to scores that are not wall-to-wall because I feel that music can't say anything unless it's also absent. If it's playing all the time, you will just eventually tune it out and we call it wallpaper. And then you're not aware of it doing anything other than just being a drone that's going on through there. So, um, so for example, I see a lot of younger viewers commenting on the original 1977 Star Wars now, and they can't understand why the middle section of the final battle scene has no music. It seems odd to them. And, of course, now that it would just be wall-to-wall all the way through. But uh, there's something that happens narratively when um, the leader of the squadron crashes and now it's up to Luke's group and the music comes back in and suddenly there's almost a sense internally that you're kind of coming to attention. You are aware that the stakes have risen and now you better maybe lean forward and pay a little more attention. That's the art of spotting. So um, to a degree, I think that that's a little bit of a lost art and um, filmmakers and producers, of course, you end up with 40 producers on something and test marketing firms that have to put everything against a slide rule. And you very frequently end up with the idea of saving something with the music, um, usually thought up by people who don't understand music. Um, and uh, so a good score to me is one that's spare, has breathing room where it's not playing and where it uh, um, adds a layer to the thematic and the emotional resonance that's underneath the surface narrative. Yeah, young composers say, you know, what advice do you have? I'm like, learn the art of spotting. That's always the number one thing I say. Learn the art of spotting. Watch the movie and just don't think that it's wall to wall. Just look at it and say, where is it needed? Because then you can say something. 
if you're going for two hours, you, you say less than if you're going for 70 minutes. Is there any final? Yeah, no, no, only to say that I'm just, I, yeah, I'm just gratified beyond any words that I could express that this is finally done because I just uh, think that it's so loved that uh, it needs to be out there so that it continue to it can continue to be loved and um, I just uh, I'm thankful to Rodgers and Hammerstein and Craft Recordings for um, having the faith to let me at last come in and do it the way I always saw that uh, we could potentially get it done and I just uh, this is for everybody that's going to outlive us you know um, uh, after we're long gone, I want something there that's just equally valid to listen to and go to for generations to come. Well, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>